Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I'm going to give you a chance to cheer if you're ready to do this. Tonight we will finish Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. All right. All right. Don't take it personally, Lord, those people that cheered a little louder than others. So. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, has caused many Christians to fear that they might be surprised on the day of judgment. For years, I've had Christians say, does this mean that there's a possibility that I'm thinking I'm going to heaven, but then when I get there, I found out I'm not? We're going to deal with that tonight, and I want you to see that a closer reading of these verses and an examination of the whole of Scripture will show us that Jesus wasn't trying to scare believers, but warn those whose confidence is in their own efforts for salvation. I want you to understand that. We're going to see that from the whole of Scripture tonight and from this passage and the context. I, too, when I was younger and was first studying the Scriptures, used to think that this might, you know, there might be those who are going to be surprised. I'm going to show you the Scripture doesn't teach that. And actually, as you see this, this is not saying that there'll be some that are surprised. The scripture is made very clear, and we're going to deal with that. So, so stick with me tonight. Jesus says, only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. So this begs a question then, right? What's the will of the Father? Well, let's take a look. Let's start with a simple one we all know. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse 9. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, very familiar passage, talking about people that say, well, where's this coming of the Lord that He's promised? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, as we deal with what's the will of the Father, He wants everyone to repent. That's the will of the Father. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to repent. We've already dealt with last week that narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it and wides the path that goes to destruction and many go that way. But the will of the Father is that all come to repentance. Go to John chapter 6, though, and look at verses 28 and 29. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. Then they said to him, they said to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Simple question. They asked him, What do we need to be doing to do the works of God? Remember, Jesus has already said here in our passage from Matthew, Whoever does the will of my Father is the one that's going to heaven. Who doesn't do the will of my Father is not going to heaven. 
They even asked Jesus straight up. They said, what is the Father's will? In other words, what, is the, what do we need to be doing to do the works of God? What was the answer? Believe in the one that he sent. Believe in him. Go to Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 23. Passage we looked at last week at the very end. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So here we see some more. Again, we, the will of the Father is that no one perish, but that everyone come to repentance. The do the work of God is to believe in the one that God has sent. We also see now that in order to be pleasing to God and do the works of God, in order to follow Jesus and to believe in the one that he sent, which is Jesus, we are to deny ourselves. Does anybody know what denying yourself is? Laying your flesh on the altar. Very good. It's putting no confidence in your ability to get yourself right before God. To deny yourself is to put full faith in Jesus Christ and have nothing with you. I, you've heard me share this maybe before. I've talked to many a person over the years in churches. Notice how I didn't say Christians. I just said many a person over the years in churches, and I've asked them if they died today, would they go to heaven? And a lot of times they say, I hope so. And I say to them, well, what do you mean you hope so? And they say, well, I believe in Jesus, and I'm trying to live a good life. These individuals have put some faith in Christ and some faith in their ability to be good enough. Folks, to deny yourself is to have no confidence at all in any of your flesh. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Let's just listen to how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason to for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, I love that statement. Does anybody think they have enough reason to have confidence in their ability to get some, themselves to heaven? I challenge you to think if you have any more, more than me. Listen to what he says. He says, I've, uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Did you catch that? He said, if anybody has reason to have confidence in the flesh, I challenge you to show, show yourself to have more than I do. I have the most, but I count that all as rubbish, that I may know Christ and have all my faith in what he's accomplished and none of what I've done. Here he was trying to earn his way to heaven, trying to be the best Pharisee he could be, the best Jew he could be. He was even circumcised on the eighth day by his parents, and, and he did all these things, and he came to realize that all that was a waste of time. It was rubbish. 
And so Paul, he had denied himself. By the way, when he became a follower of Christ, what happened to all that stuff that he had been doing all those years, climbing the ladder? All, it was all thrown away for the sake of Christ. He lost his position in, in, in the nation. He lost his position as a Pharisee. He lost all that stuff. But he said, you know what? My full faith is in Christ. And folks, I just want you to understand, as we deal with this passage that we're looking at tonight, this passage that for years people have thought that going to make you're going to get to heaven and think you're okay when you're not. The scripture is going to show you where your faith has been the whole time. Go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 37 through 41. In Acts chapter 2 verse 37 says, now when they heard this, well, what had they just heard? Peter's just been filled by the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit to preach at Pentecost. He's just finished in verse 36 and said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They cried out at the end of the message and says, What do you want us to do then? What should we do? What was the answer? Repent. Remember, the will of the Father is that everyone come to repentance. Repent. Acknowledge that you have sinned and that you're, you realize it's separated you from God. Don't think it's okay. Remember we heard in the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are the poor in spirit. We're all poor in spirit, but blessed are those who not only acknowledge it, blessed are those who mourn and are grieved because they're poor in spirit. That's that heart of repentance. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they realize they don't have it. And they'll be filled. All this has been pointing to the fact, as we've been looking at, that Jesus was showing them their sin condition, their need of a Savior. All of this is, He has been saying to them all along, believe in the one that He sent. Don't put any confidence in your own flesh. Don't put any confidence in your ability to get yourself to God. Go straight to Jesus Himself. What are we to do? Repent and believe in the one that He sent. And how we identify with Him is we get baptized. By the way, I show people in my wedding ring all the time. Does this, if I take this off, am I still married? Yeah, my wedding ring doesn't make me married or not married. It's my way of showing everybody what's happened. Your baptism doesn't make you saved or not saved, because if your baptism got you saved, then you're putting a confidence in something you did in order to get you into heaven. Put no confidence in anything you do. No confidence in the flesh. But Jesus says, believe and be baptized. It's a way to wear your wedding ring, if you will. Identify with him that you put your faith in him. The old you's gone, the new has come. We'll go to Romans chapter 3. Let's let the scripture keep speaking to us. You're there in Acts chapter 2. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 19 through 24. Hopefully you're starting to realize the gospel's been all through the scriptures all along. It says, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, the law and the prophets have been pointing to this all along. Salvation has never been by how good you were, because if, if, if the sacrifices and all the things that the law pointed to and all the things that, that you thought you could earn to get yourself right before God were good enough, they would have been sufficient, but they had to keep being offered over and over and over. Why? Because it wasn't enough. And that's why Paul then in his book here in Romans lays out that the promise of righteousness by faith was given to Abraham before he was even circumcised. God was showing all along that it's always been by faith. The law was brought to do what? To reveal the sin. It also fuels the sin nature and causes us to sin more, as we've already dealt with, because when someone does, says, you shall not, your flesh says, oh yeah, now I want to even more. The whole purpose of the law was to reveal sin. No one will ever be righteous before God. Yet how many people in this world have been duped by the enemy? If you were to talk to most people in the world that even believe that there's a God, even though they all know He's there, even though they pretend He isn't, if you were to ask them, well, if you died, would you go to heaven? Most of their answers would be, I think so, I believe so, I think when God weighs my good and my bad, my good's going to outweigh my bad, and I've been a pretty good person. They think that salvation and righteousness comes by how good they were. Oh, don't get too judgmental on them. Some of you, even though you've been saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, still think God likes you better one day than another because of how good you've been. Correct? I'm not the only one, right? We still have to fight with that, don't we? We still have to fight with that. It's pretty clear. We're saved by faith alone in Jesus' sinless life, His sacrificial death on our behalf, and His resurrection from the dead. Go back to Matthew chapter 7 and look closely at what the many will look to as proof of their worthiness to get to heaven. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will of the Father? Repent and believe in the one that he sent and put no confidence in the flesh. Deny yourself. There it is right there. The one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that interesting? Where, what, where is their faith? In themselves. In themselves. The gospel's been preached over and over and over. And hopefully you hear this. Folks, if you go stand before God, and he says, you're not in. And your response is, but I did all this good stuff. You've never had faith in Christ. Your faith was always in what you did. That's not a believer that all of a sudden is going to realize, wait a minute. No, these are people that never were believers because their faith had always been in their own selves. Oh, but Jim, does that doesn't mean that they won't be surprised. Oh, stick with to the end of the study. Don't run ahead. Let's just take a look at the fact, though, that Judas is a great example of this kind of a person. You see, Judas was one of the group of Jesus' disciples. Judas was even designated by Jesus as one of his 12 apostles. Go to Mark chapter 3. Mark 
Mark chapter 3, look at verses 13 through 19. And he, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Well, hang on for a second. The scripture says that Jesus called to those whom he wanted and he designated 12 of them to be apostles and Jesus chose Judas. Was Jesus duped? He knows everything. He knows the hearts of men. So why did Jesus choose him? Actually, we're going to deal with that later, so don't answer that question right now. <laughs> but yes, but you were, it was rhetorical. But at the same time, your answer is one of the first answers, and you're right. Listen closely, though. We'll deal with that later. Hang on to that. Why did Jesus choose him? But we're not answering it now. We're, wait, we're answering that later. I just, it was a rhetorical question. I didn't make it clear enough. But we also want to keep in mind, though, Judas preached. Judas cast out demons. I want you to keep that in mind. Judas preached. He cast out demons. He was paired up with somebody when he sent him out two by two to cast out demons and to heal. And we see nowhere in Scripture where someone comes back to Jesus and says, Hey, can I talk to you for a second? You paired me up with Judas and he couldn't do it. We don't see that anywhere in the scripture. Go real quickly to Matthew chapter 26. Because the scripture shows us, I'm going to show you three context, uh, three different reports of this. In Matthew 26, verses 20 through 25, when Jesus told them on the last night before he was crucified, when he told them that one of them was going to betray him, the other disciples had no idea. They had no idea. Matthew 26, verses 20 through 25. When it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Go to Luke 22. Look at verses 14 through 23. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table with the, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, it, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, 
He broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Again, they didn't know. By the way, for those who know your Bibles, at this point, had Judas already made up his mind to betray him? And Judas had already worked it out, yes. He had already had the conversation with the leadership. With the money. Yeah, but I don't think he actually decided to do it until Satan entered him. Well, and your point is very good in the fact that, but he had already begun the whole process. He had already begun the whole process. Go to John chapter 13. Go to John chapter 13. Look at verses 21 through 30. John chapter 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas and the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him uh, to buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. By the way, for some of you that get kind of freaked out over whether or not so-and-so should take the Lord's Supper or not, did Judas take the Lord's Supper? He sure did. Judas took the Lord's Supper. Go ahead. Here, after he, well, mine says soft, and you said something, but then he, then Satan entered him. Right. Satan wasn't any before. He was influencing him from without, if you will, but at that point he indwelt him and took full control And at that point. But yes. He was the Holy Spirit that would come to indwell any of the apostles right. until after the resurrection. Correct. And therefore, although Jesus came and was tempted in all ways, like any man, right. he overcame that temptation. But he did it because he was God himself. Jesus was Jesus was indwelt. Right. Right, exactly. Right. But, but all, all of us, I mean, how do you know you're saved? You're sealed. Well, you're running ahead still. But yes, we are running ahead. You, you, you're, you're like getting like eight A-plus points here tonight. You're, exactly. That's good. That's good. But, but you got to... <laughs> it's not pats on the back? All right. But you're right. And that's what we're going to deal with. We're going to be talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the confirmation that we're His. See, again, a lot of people thought that that passage has made it look like people are going to think they're going to heaven and then they'll find out they're not. I think the Bible's pretty clear that God's been revealing to people over and over, and as you're going to see a little bit later, He confirms with us that we're His. This isn't something to scare believers. This is something to warn the people that are putting their confidence in their own selves. And even if your confidence is in yourself, that line's not going to work when you stand before God. By the way, do you know that Scripture says that Judas never was a believer? There's been great debate over the years 
I've heard too many Christians argue over, well, maybe he, well, he felt sorry for what he did, and he, he threw the money back, and maybe Jesus forgave him or saved him. No, the scripture is very clear, folks. Judas never was a believer, and Judas is in hell. Let the scripture speak. We'll go to Acts chapter 1. I'll show you what I mean. I'm going to show you three passages real quick. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 25. In Acts chapter 1, look at verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the Holy Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be none, no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So some of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, two Joseph called Barsabbas, and who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go where? To his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Here very clearly said that he went where he belonged. He went to his place. Go to John chapter 17, verse 12. In John chapter 17, look at verse 12. Jesus said, as he was praying there the night that he was to be arrested, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Some of your translations say son of perdition. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 18 through 25. First John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, and if what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that is made to us, eternal life. Folks, let me just say something to you. Judas never was one of them. He didn't lose his salvation. The Bible's very clear he never had it. 
Does anybody, can anybody give me an example from what Judas did scripturally that shows us that Judas never came to repentance? Because it, it appears that he did to some people, because once he realized after Jesus had been crucified, he realized what he had done. He went and he took the money and he gave it, tried to give it back. And they said, look, that's blood money. We're not taking that into the temple. And he just threw it and he ran off and he committed suicide. Does anybody, from what I just share with you, can you tell me how you know Judas didn't repent? Well, yes, in the committed suicide, but don't take it in the wrong way. There are those that teach that if you commit suicide, then that's the, an unforgivable sin. That's not the case. He could have run to Jesus. Again, what's the works that God's looking for? Not just repenting, but you also believe in the one that he sent. And if he would really had repentance, he would have gone and said, Jesus, I was wrong. Forgive me. But of course, but he died. He couldn't. Have. No, no, no. He could have easily prayed to the Father. He could have prayed to the Father. Oh, and on top of that, his committing of suicide was he was trying to pay for his own sin. He felt so bad about what he did, he thought, I'll take my own life. In other words, I'll pay for what I did. Folks, if you think you have to pay at all, your full faith isn't in Jesus Christ. He was possessed of the difference of repentance that Peter had versus... Exactly. Peter, Peter denied him just as much. But at the same time, Peter went back. Folks, I, just hear this. Jesus picked Judas to be one of the 12 apostles, knowing that he would never be one of them, knowing that he would deny him, knowing that he would do all this. Then why did Jesus choose Judas to be one of the 12 apostles? We'll start with yours. Now you can go back and give your answer. In order that scripture might be fulfilled. Go to John chapter 17 again. The verse we just read, look again in verse 12. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is praying and said, I've lost none that you've given me except the one doomed to destruction. So that what? So that scripture might be fulfilled. Go back to Acts chapter 1 again, verses 15 and 16. When Peter was praying there in the upper room after Jesus' death and resurrection, before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, Look at verses 15 and 16 again. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who, who arrested Jesus. And then he goes on and he quotes the passages that were referring to Jesus. This prophecy in the Psalms about he who shares my bread is going to turn his hand against me. May another take his place of office. All these things that uh, the, Peter was talking about. Again, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So why did Jesus choose Judas? One of the reasons was scripture had to be fulfilled. But there's another reason, and I really want you to hear this. To serve as an example of the parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. I want you to see what I'm talking about. Go to Mark chapter 4. Go to Mark chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 20. We live in a day and age in which people are claiming to be spiritual. We live in a day and age in which people are saying that there are many ways to God, and, 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 and I believe in a different Jesus than you, but we're all good because we have faith and 
Folks, there are many who are claiming to be right with God, but the scripture says the road that leads to eternal life is narrow. By the way, does that kind of get rid of there are many roads? Kind of get rid, gets rid of that whole lie, doesn't it? That there are many roads? Jesus said there's only one. On top of that, the Bible says that there's going to be an increase in spirituality in the last days, but it's going to be a false spirituality. And in Mark chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 20. And again, he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and his teach, in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, and where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word so that it's sown, that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful, unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold, and 60-fold, and 100-fold. Let me ask you a question. According to James chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, If you're able to keep the whole law but stumble at one point, your guilt is if you broke it all. And according to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that says that there's no one righteous, not even one. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 11, that says no one seeks God, no one understands. Apart from the work of the Spirit, is there any such thing as good soil? No. So how can the seed ever fall on good soil? The Spirit of God goes out into the world and He does His work. Those of you that like to garden, if you're going to plant a garden, you would first take a rototiller or a hoe and you would break up the fallow ground, as it's called in the book of Jeremiah. But you don't just start planting once you broke up the hard soil. You then go and you get the rocks out. Then you go and you get the thorns out and then you plant the seed the Spirit of God is the one who prepares the soil. The Spirit of God is the one who, in many different ways, gets our hearts ready to receive it. The Spirit of God is the one who breaks up the hard path. He's the one who gets the rocks out. He's the one that gets the soil, the heart, ready to respond. But we've been taught to hurry up and go get someone to pray a prayer. And we're surprised when people in our church that are, quote-unquote, members who have been baptized, who seem to respond to the Word, all of a sudden fall away because Mama died. Or something happens that gets them upset with God. And they had, well, that's because a lot of the people that we've been taught to get people to pray the prayer 
They never let the Spirit of God do His work to get them ready to respond to the soil, to respond to the, the seed. Folks, all we need to understand this, this salvation thing is God's work. It's God's work. It's not ours. We're just to be faithful to go plant and water. It's God who takes care of the increase. Our job is just to scatter the seed and to live it in such a way that we don't stomp the seed. That's how you water it. You preach it and you live it like you believe it. And that's it. We're not in a hurry. We've been taught to hurry up and get people to pray, get people to respond, get people to get saved. Have you ever noticed when Jesus shared the gospel, he'd leave the seed and walk away? You're Israel's teacher, Nicodemus, and you don't understand these things? And he went on his way. He didn't stick around to get him to pray the prayer. All along, the scripture is very, very clear. If we really believed in a big God, we would stop trying to mobilize more workers and we would pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field. If we really believed in the work of God to do his work, if you look back on your life, those of you that are good soil, you only became good soil because the spirit of God was able over time to get you to that point. If you look back over your life, he'd been working on you for quite a while, hadn't he? It's a rare, rare, rare occurrence that somebody has somebody knock on their door, have them read a tract and get saved by, the, by page 10. Yeah, that's how we've been taught to share the gospel. Folks, but Jesus wants us to understand the parable of the soils. Go to Matthew chapter 13. By the way, that's why the Bible teaches that those who serve in leadership, the elders, should not be recent converts. Because the only way you're going to know whether or not someone's a true convert is what? Over time, fruit over time. Matthew chapter 13, look at verses 24 and following. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in, my, in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So their servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest than gathering the weeds, you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Again, here Jesus gives a parable and he says, look, there's going to be good seed in the field, but there's also going to be weeds among the wheat. And who did that? Satan. Did you, did you catch that, folks? There's going to be people in our churches that aren't really of us. Should we put together a group that's going to go and figure out who's who and who's not? No, it's not our job. We're to be just going along, continuing to walk with the Lord. I say it to you again. Folks, stop looking at what we call the American church today and judging the work of God. Keep in mind, Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Stop looking at what the world calls church. What he's looking for is people that have their full faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not looking for church members. There's going to be church members among us. I hope you're not a church member. I hope you heard what I just said. I hope you're involved in a church. I hope you're plugged into a church. I hope you're a part of a body and fellowshipping and encourage each other and worshiping together. But if you're just more interested in the fact that you're a church member, your faith is in something you're doing, not in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something I have to be reminded of as a preacher and as a pastor over the years. 
I got to stop looking at everybody and trying to get everybody to act like they're Christians. Not everybody in the church is a Christian. I'm to preach the word to the people that are there and I leave the results to God because in the end, he's going to separate those who are and those who aren't. And so who should we be worried about? Ourselves. But that's near the end. Go ahead. The harvest in verse 30, is that the second coming? Or this, is, this is not the rapture. This is the second coming. Here he's talking again. Remember, Matthew's written to the Jews, and Jesus is talking about how he's going to gather the wheat, and then who's going to be left at the end of the, at the, end of the second coming? The righteous. They're going to enter the millennial kingdom. Go to Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 through 40. You're in Matthew 13. Go to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and the disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Folks, again, I want you to hear this. The enemy has been allowed by God to put weeds among the wheat. He's been allowed to do it. How many of you have walked away from the Lord. And I may not be speaking to anybody in this room, but if I am, listen. I may be speaking to someone who's listening right now online, but listen, how many of you have walked away from the Lord for a season because of a person, quote-unquote church member, who treated you a certain way, or acted a certain way, and you thought that person who's a Christian should never have done that, and you were discouraged in God because of a person probably wasn't even a wheat. But just because they were a church member, you assumed they were. Folks, take your eyes off of the people around you and understand that God has allowed in amongst us to be those who aren't of us. And the perfect example is Judas. Aren't you kind of glad that he chose Judas now to be one? Because it matches up with everything that he would be doing in the future. Did the disciples have any idea that it was Judas? They were clueless. And they were supposed to be. That's something God's going to take care of. The thing is, take your eyes off of the people around you. I can't believe she acted like that. She calls herself a Christian. And you walk with Jesus. And my question to you is, is your faith in how you act? Or is your faith in Lord Jesus Christ, that he who began the good work in you will finish? So according to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, what is your house, your faith built on? Go back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears the words, these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Let me ask you, what is your faith built on? Jesus. If it's on Jesus, who is the rock, you'll be fine. 
Because it doesn't matter what happens around you, you're going to be fine. It doesn't matter what other people do to you. You're going to be like that Paul, who at the end of his life said, At my first defense, no one stood by me. They all deserted me. May it not be held against them. The Lord was with me. I'll be fine. You're going to be like David, who was able to write, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He, but he also takes me through the valley of the shadow of death. But I'll fear no evil. For he's with me and his rod and his staff will comfort me. My faith is in the Lord. I'll be fine. There's going to be people that let you down. There are going to be preachers that let you down. There's going to be false teachers that are out there. There's going to be things that happen in your life. God's going to allow the enemy to do stuff. And if your faith is on the rock, when all that stuff happens, you'll be fine. If your faith is on anything else, let me just tell you, that's like building a house on sand. And if your faith is on the fact that you've worked really hard and you've been faithful and you've been committed and I've worked so many years in this church and I've been the most faithful and all those rascals don't even come to Sunday night service, but I'm there, but we'll be careful. We'll be careful. You think anything is tied to what you've done. You don't understand because the Bible even says the fact that you even are able to respond to the seed and become good soil of all the work of God himself. So that no one may boast before God. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is also the way. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, by the way, Jesus also said that he's the good shepherd. He also said he wasn't just the good shepherd, he's the door of the sheep. I think he also said in John chapter 7, verses 37 and following, that he is the living water. He also said in John chapter 6 that he is the bread from heaven. He also said he was the narrow way. Folks, I don't know if we caught this yet, but Jesus kept saying over and over and over and over, it's me and me alone. So don't fall prey in these days to people who sound spiritual, who like to quote a little bit of scripture, but not all of it, who try to make God into something that he's not. Jesus said, I'm narrow minded. I'm very narrow minded. And not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. And the will of my father is that they come to repentance, acknowledge their sin, realize they're in trouble, who can come to me and believe in the one that he sent and deny themselves and put no confidence in the flesh and all confidence in me. Folks, if you're here tonight and that's you, you're going to be fine because he who build, began the good work is going to finish it. And he's building his church and the gates of hell aren't going to mess with it. Oh, the gates of hell are going to be all around and mixed in among us for a while, but that's okay. Um, it makes it easier for the real ones to show up. I used to hate the fact that there were divisions in the church until I read what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and no doubt I believe it because there have to be divisions to show which of you are genuine. By the way, go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. Has anybody caught on why his teaching had authority? And when, they, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, 
for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Their scribes and their teachers would try to get their authority from people that they quoted. Gamaliel says, or Hillel says, or these people have said, and they would teach what other people had said, and they would get their authority from their footnotes. But Jesus comes and said, I say. Anybody want to know why he had authority? Uh, because he's the word. And let's go again. He's the way, the truth, the life, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep, the living water, the bread from heaven, the narrow way, the rock. Do you get it? He is the authority. He has the final say. Folks will say, well, well, you're just, that's what you believe. No, that's what God said. I just happen to believe it. But it's not right because I believe it. Oh, be careful, because there's lots of people who tell you it's right because they believe it. It's right because he said it. Let me give you a little encouragement so you don't worry about whether or not you're going to find out when you get to heaven whether or not you're going then. Go to Romans chapter 8. Some of you here, maybe some of you that are listening right now, maybe need to spend some time and say, Lord Jesus, it's all you. It's all you. I throw away anything else that I put confidence in. Show me. Show me if I'm putting faith in anything else besides you. I want it to be totally on you. I'll build my house on the rock. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. If you do that and you put your full faith in Jesus, this is what's going to happen. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. It says, For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Did you catch that? Does the Bible teach in Matthew 7 that God wants you worrying about whether or not when you die you're going to be in or out? No, that passage is not to scare believers. That passage is to warn those who put their faith in what they've done. But for those of us who are truly born again, He didn't give us His Spirit to have, have live in fear. He's given us the spirit of adoption so we can call Him Daddy. And His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're His. Folks, there's nothing greater than having that helmet of salvation put on, and that way you can fight against the attacks of the enemy. Back in 1990s, middle 90s, I went through a period while I was an associate pastor of a church in New Orleans where I would question whether or not I was even saved. Satan began to work me over. You know, has anybody else here gone through a period as a believer where you question whether or not you're really saved? You know what? It was one of the most miserable two years ever had in my life, but I look back and thank God for it because it settled that issue in my heart. I put that helmet of salvation on and Satan's no longer able to attack me in that area, but there was a period where it was bad. So bad that nobody else knew what was going on. And we had a revival preacher come and he did a revival where he didn't preach the scriptures. All he did was tell story upon story about this deacon who was a deacon for 50 years and then they got saved. And this preacher was a preacher for 40 years and then they got saved. And he kept telling all these stories. And by the end of the week of the revival, everybody in the church had gone forward to go get saved again. This guy, you know, he got to put a lot of big numbers in his newsletter about how many people responded. But I went back one night during the revival into the senior pastor's office and he was mad as a hornet. And if he could have, he would have killed the revival preacher. He was just livid. He said, Jim, that man has done so much damage to our church this week. Some of our best Christians have been worked over. 
And I said to him, I said, I, I got to be honest with you, preacher. <laughs> he has me wondering. He said, let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone and visited somebody in the hospital who has cancer? And I go, yeah, you make me do it. You know? <laughs> he said, just imagine you go to the hospital and you have, visit someone that's got cancer and you say to them, how'd you first find out that you had cancer? And they say, well, it started with a headache. And he said, then you go down the hall and you visit somebody else who's got cancer and you say, hey, how did you first recognize you had cancer? And they say, well, you know what? started with a headache. And he says, after a couple more of those stories, what do you think is going to happen the next time you get a headache? You're going to think you have cancer. He said, Jim, this man did not use the scripture. He did not use the word of God. He just used stories. And if you tell enough stories, pretty soon it's going to hit everybody's life. That's not preaching. Thus began the journey of me going to the Word to have Him confirm in my heart that I was His. And His Spirit testified with my spirit that I'm His. Now, I could tell you how He did it for me, but that would be dangerous because how He'll reveal it to you might be different than how He revealed it to me. So I'm not going to tell you how He revealed it to me. But I went to the Word, and the Word and the Spirit confirmed it in my heart. And I can look you in the eye and say, I'm not worried about Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, because when I stand before God... I'm only going to be there because of Jesus and no other reason. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 13. 1 John chapter 4 verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of his spirit. How do you know you're saved? Because you've worked hard? Because you've been the most faithful? Because you're the one that opened the doors and, and locked the doors? How do you know that you're saved? The spirit testifies with your spirit that you're his. He's not giving you a spirit of fear. He doesn't want you worrying about that stuff. Years ago, when Becky's dad actually did get saved at a later time in his life. He didn't get saved until he was 48 years old, was a member of this church, was a deacon, would preach when the pastor was out of town. And the Lord did a work in his heart and showed him that he wasn't born again. And when he got saved at 48 years old, it kind of rocked a few of us. And he sat us all down one day and he said, listen, there's a big difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. He said, I knew I was lost. My faith was in all that I had done, not in Jesus. Oh, and by the way, for those of us, some of in the room that knew him after that, from that point forward, the man that we thought was saved, who became saved, dude, did he become saved. God did a work. He became someone that was obvious that God was in him. I'm going to close with one last passage for you tonight. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Look at verse 5. Second Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You see it? What's the test of whether or not you're saved? Did he say, did you get baptized? Did he say that you prayed a prayer? 
Did he say that you were a church member? Did he say that you worked hard? Those are all things you do. Is Jesus in you? Oh, and folks, if Jesus is in you, you're going to be fine if the preacher doesn't preach like you want him to preach. If Jesus is in you, you're going to be fine if the choir doesn't sing what you want them to sing or the music department doesn't do the kind of music you like. You're going to be fine. If Jesus is in you, you don't care if someone sits in your seat or if someone acts a certain way towards you. If Jesus is in you, the Lord is your shepherd and you're fine and you'll know you'll be good. So let's it's time for the wheat to be recognized among the weeds. Let's let Jesus, who's in us, have control. And maybe, just maybe, he might use you to help someone realize that there's a difference between you and them. And hopefully, they'll get to be a part of the kingdom as well. And they'll stop putting their faith in all that they've done and put them in Jesus. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.